Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity, entitled Evidence and Value of Prescription Omega-3 Fatty Acids in Cardiovascular Disease Management, is provided by Medtelligence and is supported by an independent educational grant from Ameren Pharma Incorporated. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. For many years, lipid management has focused on lowering patients' LDL cholesterol with the use of statin therapy, and even more recently, in combination with agents like azetamibe and the PCSK9 inhibitors evolocumab and alirocumab. But despite their success in significantly reducing cardiovascular events, there remains a considerable need for event reduction. Fortunately, we now have findings from a landmark trial on icosapentethyl that could help us find a way to meet that need. This is CME on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Deepak Elbat, and joining me today to explore how these findings are changing our approach to lipid management are Dr. Mary Catherine Cheely and Dr. Daniel Hilleman. Dr. Cheely, Dr. Hilleman, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm going to begin by reviewing the key features of the REDUCE-IT trial and how it compares with other omega-3 fatty acid studies and likely reasons for the difference. So there have been a number of studies of low-dose omega-3 mixtures through the years, and at least in aggregate, taking all the data together, there really wasn't any clear signal of cardiovascular benefit. No signal of harm, but no signal of benefit. And in fact, Part of the reason likely has to do with what was being studied, largely mixtures of low-dose omega-3 fatty acids, about a gram a day or so of mixtures of EPA and DHA. And especially if we're talking about supplements, those are compounds that you don't really know what's in them. In fact, there can be lots of other saturated fats, other sorts of fats. These fats are subject to oxidation, which might undo any potential cardiovascular benefit, potentially even create the potential for harm. So the supplements, uh, really a lot of scientific reasons that they're not so great. EPA, DHA, these are different omega-3 fatty acids, and there's a key difference between the two. It has to do with a carbon double bond, and that, what might seem like a slight difference in chemistry, translates into meaningful differences in terms of what happens in various investigational models, like studying cell membrane preparations, where EPA gets into the cell membrane and induces order, whereas DHA gets into cell membrane preparations and creates a bit of disorder. And at least for cardiovascular protection, it might be then that EPA is better than DHA. In fact, we studied a highly purified ethyl ester of EPA called icosapentethyl, a prescription medication in the REDUCE-IT trial. This was a trial of over 8,000 patients with either established atherosclerosis or diabetes and multiple risk factors, followed them for a median of 4.9 years after randomly assigning them to 4 grams a day of icosapentethyl, 2 grams twice a day with meals, or a matching placebo. The primary endpoint of that study was a composite so a uh, mixture of cardiovascular death, myocardial infarction, stroke, revascularization, or hospitalization for unstable angina. And there was a 25% reduction in that endpoint that was statistically significant. So positive trial. In fact, it's a very positive trial for that primary endpoint. We also examined a key secondary endpoint of cardiovascular death, MI stroke. That, too, was significantly reduced, about a 26% relative risk reduction. Again, highly statistically significant. So that's looking at the conventional way of examining data, the time-to-first event. 
We also examined total events, that is not just first ischemic events, but subsequent ones, first and subsequent total events. Uh, And there we saw about a 31% reduction in events. And in terms of the population that we treated, those 8,000 patients, and reduced about 500 less events. So a large relative risk reduction, very large absolute risk reduction as well. So that really is a quick top-line summary of what Reduce it show. There's a lot of details in terms of the data, but really the overall message is a, a drug that performed very well in terms of efficacy, also, though I didn't review it, uh, tolerated and as safe as a placebo overall in the trial, uh, though there was a, a slight increase in, in more minor forms of bleeding and in hospitalization for atrial fibrillation. So that's the package of Reduce it data. Turning to you now, Dr. Hilleman, what can you tell us about the clinical utility of icosapentethyl? Well, clinical utility um, is the trade-off between uh, clinical value and and economic value. Uh, The the clinical value of icosapenethyl and reduce it was based on a number needed to treat uh, with the drug uh, to reduce one major adverse cardiovascular event over the the lifetime of the study. Uh, And the number needed to treat and and reduce it was 21, and that's a really uh, good, uh, good number. Uh, the, the trade-off is the economic cost because the comparison was placebo. So the cost of providing icosapenethyl uh, to the study population has to be balanced against the reduction in major adverse cardiovascular events, which obviously have uh, healthcare costs. So there have been a, a couple of uh, cost-effectiveness analyses that have uh, been conducted to demonstrate that, in fact, icosapenethyl is cost-effective. Yeah, there actually have been uh, two uh, presentations on the cost-effectiveness of icosapenethyl based on the outcome of, of the REDUCE-IT trial, uh, one from the Institute for Clinical Evaluation and Research, or better known as ICER, uh, which found that uh, the uh, dollar spent per quality-adjusted life year uh, in REDUCE-IT was about $18,000 per quality-adjusted life year. Typically, um, Therapies that have a cost per quality adjusted life year less than $50,000 are considered highly cost effective. Uh, Bill Weintraub, who is the director of uh, health outcomes at uh, MedStar Heart and Vascular Institute at Georgetown University, also presented a cost effectiveness analysis, an incremental cost effectiveness analysis on the reduce it data and found that, in fact, uh, the use of icosapenethyl was dominant in about 70% of the cases, that, in fact, there was cost savings with the the use of icosapenethyl due to the decrease in cost associated with major adverse cardiovascular events. So, Dr. Chile, now that we have a better understanding of the clinical utility of IPE, how can we go about identifying patients with diabetes or atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease who might benefit? So for patients with diabetes, that is a lot of patients. So it's a, it's a very interesting question to ask. And clinically, how do we put that in front of the patient in front of us? Um, for my practice and, and where we are, I also look back to the reduce it study. So looking at those additional risk factor criteria that were there. Does the patient have hypertension? Do they have um, peripheral artery disease but not necessarily intermittent claudication? Or are they a smoker? So those patients certainly would fit that criteria, but then again, they still need to have that triglyceride of greater than 135, but still less than 500 um, to to, to fit those criteria that were studied in the REDUCE IT trial. So once we identify those patients who are eligible for IP, how do we actually prescribe it? 
That's also a very good question. And I think anytime you have an expanded indication uh, for a drug with uh, this kind of an indication, where you have a very large uh, segment of the population established atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, patients with diabetes and other risk factors, um, it's going to be a challenge. Um, so the existing, pre-existing indication was for severe hypertriglyceridemia, triglycerides over 500. And that required prior authorization for almost all of the prescriptions for icosapent ethyl. With the new expanded indication, I think we're still in an evolutionary stage where uh, insurance providers uh, are still requiring uh, prior authorization to get prescriptions approved for icosapenethyl. It does seem to me, though, that things are changing rapidly in terms of third-party payers and, and uh, moving up icosapenethyl in terms of tiers of coverage. Uh, do you think the robustness of the data, including the cost-effectiveness data, will influence third-party payers? I do. I, I think it's going to be just a matter of, of time. And I can't say with, with certainty how many months or perhaps years uh, before we see uh, total acceptance of this as a, a standard um, therapy for, for the patients that meet the, the inclusion criteria. I, I, so that's, I think, going to be a positive. I think the other challenge is going to be uh, a mindset that this is just a fish oil and that you can purchase this as a dietary supplement and get the same results, which is totally inaccurate. This is a highly purified 4-gram dose of EPA only, the icosapenethyl, and you're not going to be able to get the results with dietary supplements as you previously discussed in the opening. So uh, I think that's another challenge that we face as healthcare providers is educating patients and uh, other healthcare providers, that this is a unique uh, prescription-only form of, of EPA-only. What about in your neck of the woods? What's going on? Yeah, so in my patients, I, um, I've seen that there are insurers that are not requiring prior auths anymore, which I think is fantastic. Um, but I have seen issues with certain Medicaids or certain other plans that try to steer you towards the combination DHA-EPA products because those are preferred, whereas an EPA-only icosapenethyl is not. Um, so that's where a letter of medical necessity comes in and where you can cite the data and kind of plead your case. I've had success with that as well. Um, so I do think the robustness of the data makes it easier on our part when we get to the appeal level. It's just taking the time to get to the appeal level and being patient with the insurer through that. Yeah, and I think you're also right pointing out to them the data for the mixtures of EPA and DHA. It's largely uh, negative trials, even the most recent one with high-dose EPA and DHA, the STRENGTH trial was terminated at the decision of the Independent Data Monitoring Committee. So mm -hmm. uh, really when insurers are saying use this EPA DHA product, it's not that there's no data. In fact, there's negative data. Correct. An important distinction, I think, that really touches upon a lot of areas of clinical practice is, is supplements. And, uh, you know, probably 20 to 30 percent of patients are taking supplements, or I should say are admitting to taking supplements. No one knows what the real percentage is. So there's a lot of supplement use in general. Fish oils uh, in particular very, very popular. But uh, the data certainly don't support any cardiovascular benefit for these supplements. The data for reduce it really pertain to icosapentethyl. What are your thoughts on this issue? I think it's a, a large issue that we as providers deal with as well. First of all, are they going to admit to taking something? Do they even think of that as a drug that they're taking? So when we do their medication reconciliation, 
we ask, what medicines do you take? So your point is well made. I also think that it's almost a little bit dangerous for some of them. So they're not regulated by the FDA. They don't have to meet certain purity and safety standards that traditional medications through pharma do have to meet. Um, so you really don't know that what is on the label is necessarily what you're getting. The other part of that is that pure EPA products, over-the-counter supplements, whatever you want to call them, are really difficult to get your hands on. There's still usually some small amount of DHA in there, even if they say they're EPA-only products. Um, and again, they're not regulated. So it's something that we need to make sure that we're asking our patients about because they may think, oh, I saw this. It said I need to take four grams or four capsules. But also the amount that's in those OTC products is much less per capsule than what you get as a prescription product. In fact, a basic investigator at Harvard Medical School, Dr. Preston Mason, has looked into these supplements, mm-hmm. he's looked into the leading supplements and seen what's in there. And there's a lot of stuff in there that I don't think patients realize that they're getting all sorts of saturated and other fats, all subject to oxidation. So okay. you're quite right. It's not only that it might not be not helpful, but also has the potential to be harmful. The other thing, too, is they're kind of expensive. They're you very know, expensive. Yeah, you know, patients are seemingly, you know, quite happy to pay out of pocket for, for these supplements that are unproven. But uh, what do you think? Yeah, I agree. Uh, we conducted a survey of, of uh, patients who admitted to using uh, fish oil dietary supplements, uh, and they were paying typically between 15 and $30 a month uh, for a product that was giving them very little active ingredient. Which is much more than they'll pay for a copay, more than likely. Another important point is not just the purity of icosapentethyl with respect to other things you can get out there, supplements and so forth. It also has to do with the fact that the way that's manufactured prevents oxidation. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the problems with the fatty acids and supplements that they're subject to oxidation, which could potentially not only negate any health benefits that they might have had, but even cause some potential harms. And work from Preston Mason, again, has suggested that might be the case. Those are all great points. Thank you both for sharing them. But unfortunately, we're all out of time for today, so I want to thank my guests, Drs. Mary Catherine Cheely and Daniel Hilleman, for helping us better understand how we can apply evidence-based guidelines and evidence from a recent trial to practice with our ASCVD patients. Dr. Cheely, Dr. Hilleman, it was great speaking with you both today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Medtelligence and is supported by an independent educational grant from Ameren Pharma Incorporated. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash medtelligence. Thank you for listening.